Colossians 1:15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm so glad that you have decided to start the new year off with us here at Christ Community Chapel. Whether you're here in the room for our West service, you're over in our East service, or you're watching online, thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, I'm really excited to start our new sermon series, which I'll tell you about in just a minute. But uh, I'm also excited to get to share a Just Because story with you uh, for two reasons. One is one of the coolest things we do as a church is blanket Northeast Ohio every Christmas season with seemingly random acts of love and kindness. And I love to hear the stories of people affected by that. And the second reason is because Joe always gets to do it. But I've got the microphone now. So... Let me share with you one more just because story from the Christmas season. This comes from Thomas in Manaway. Here's what he says. I was having a difficult time Christmas shopping at Walmart in Streetsboro because of financial challenges. As I stared at a display of clothing, wondering what I could afford to buy for my family, a man came up and handed me $200. I could not believe the timeliness or generosity of this gift. He must have seen the stress in my eyes and my body language. He told me to take the money, no strings attached, and wished me a Merry Christmas. I thanked him with tears in my eyes and with a renewed faith in human nature and the kindness of strangers. I will never forget this as long as I live. I am truly grateful. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, you can clap for that, it's awesome, yeah. <clears throat> I love the idea that God has shown us incredible kindness, and then we in turn translate that kindness into our acts of love for people around us in North East. How great job as a church leaning into that this past Christmas, and I'm already looking forward to the upcoming Christmas and what God will do through Just Because in 2023. I'm also excited about the year in general. We have so many great things planned, and we hope that this sermon series kicks off the year in the direction that God wants it to go. After all, we spend every January kind of refocusing as a church. Who are we? What are we about? What does God have in store for us? This year, we are focusing on the idea of this is my church. That really for this church to become what God wants it to become, it's going to require all of us saying, hey, this is my church. Where can I plug in? What does God have for me? One of my favorite things that Pastor Joe is always saying is that at the beginning of a year, we should think about it this way, that by the end of this year, we are either going to be more in love with Jesus than we are right now or not. 
more like Jesus or not? A church that is growing in love for Jesus, growing in holiness, growing in unity or not? And it really falls to each one of us to say, you know what, let's not waste this year. Let's make sure that we become individually and collectively everything that God wants us to be for his glory and for the good of Northeast Ohio and the world. So I'm going to get this series started by focusing this morning on the mission of our church, which is that we exist to help people reimagine life because of Jesus. If you have a Bible, would you open it up to Colossians 1, which we just heard read so well for us. And by the way, I'm using the Bible that you can get uh, in the pew in front of you here in the West Service or on the front row there underneath you. Or in East Hall, uh, you can get them in the back of the room. And if you use this Bible, one advantage is I can tell you that Colossians chapter 1 is on page 924. So if you don't know your way around the Bible, you can grab one of these. By the way, if you're new to the Bible and I'm so glad you're here if you're new to the Bible, then every Bible has a table of contents in front of it. So if you don't know your way around, you can just, like any book, open it up in the very beginning and find the page number of what you're looking for, which in this case is the letter to the Colossian church, Colossians chapter 1. But as you're turning there, let me kind of get you to think about something, and that is that when we use the word reimagine, There are only two reasons that you and I ever reimagine anything in life. There are really only two reasons why we change, okay? Uh, The first reason is what I'll call dissatisfaction. Sometimes we reimagine because we're not happy with where we are. This is when you go to sell your home because it's too small for your family or you're tired of the leaky roof or the neighbors, and you say to your family, we're going to sell because I don't want to live here anymore. That is one reason why we change. Dissatisfaction can lead us to reimagining. And I, I don't know how you come in here this morning. Maybe you're in a place of dissatisfaction. But, but if it's true that for some of us, we will never change until we grow dissatisfied, then I want you to open up to the idea that the most loving thing that God could do for you this year is to introduce just enough difficulty, just enough pain, just enough disruption that you would become dissatisfied with not knowing him in a deeper way. That actually when those circumstances come, don't take that as a sign that God doesn't love you or isn't paying attention. Instead, understand that perhaps that is the sign that he loves you and is paying attention. That that disruption is what you need to reimagine. But of course, there's a second reason people change, and that is because you found something greater. This is when that house in your community goes on sale, the one that that you've always loved and your spouse has always loved, and you come home and you say, we're selling. And they say, what's wrong with this house? Nothing, but the house we've always wanted is on the market. In that case, you're not running from something, you're running to something. You've found something so amazing, so incredible, so great that it makes you want to change. That, that is the kind of reimagining that I want to talk to you about this morning. 
Because when we say that we as a church exist to help people reimagine life because of Jesus, what we mean is that we believe we have found something in Jesus that is so great, so incredible, so amazing that it's worth reimagining everything about your life. And that's what I want to try to show you from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Now, to do that, let me hold out an outline that I'm going to use to just kind of guide our time together. Three points, very simple, and they go like this. I want to show you that Jesus is worth reimagining your life because of who he is, because of what he's done, and because of where he's going. Okay, Because of who he is, because of what he's done, and because of where he's going. All right, let's start with the first one, because of who he is. Now, the writer of this letter says some pretty amazing things about Jesus in these five verses, and I don't want you to miss them. So if you have a Bible, look with me first at the very first verse, verse 15, and then we're going to look at the end towards verse 19. Look at what he says in verse 15. This is he, he, the he here is Jesus. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now those are two really important things to say about Jesus. Let me explain. You see, when we think about God or religion or spirituality or theology or anything in that realm, we tend to think of it as an area of conversation that is really about guessing and opinion. I mean, you can't know anything about God. So when you talk about spirituality or religion or theology, you talk about it in a way where you say things like, well, to me, God is like this, or when I think about God, I think about this. And what we're really saying is you, you can't know. I mean, you can't know about God the way you know about the law of gravity. You can't know about God the way you can know about economics or parenting or marriage. I mean, you can't, you can't know and study God the way you can know and study politics. I mean, I, I've never met anyone who's actually studied anything they talk about with politics, but you can't know God in that way. He just belongs in a different category of knowledge, a different kind of thing. It's guessing. It's opinion. You can't know it. And all that makes sense, I guess, because as the writer says, God is invisible. I mean, so how could you ever know? How could you ever be certain? How could you ever have knowledge about God the way you have knowledge about the law of gravity? But here's the thing. And if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're not a Christian, I really want you to zero in on this. A central claim of Christianity is that God actually is knowable. In the same way the law of gravity is knowable, in the same way other fields and other sciences and other principles are knowable because Jesus Christ has made him knowable. Now notice what the writer says. He is the visible, look at verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. In other words, he makes what was invisible visible. In, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, the idea is that Jesus Christ is fully man, yes, but also fully 
God. All the fullness of God. He's not 60% God, 80% God, 95% God. He's all the way God. So that when Jesus comes to earth and lives and talks, he is living and talking in the exact representation of God so that to know Jesus is actually to know God. You don't have to guess about what God is like. You can know in Jesus. You don't have to guess, well, does God like this or, or does he not like that? What does God want from us? What does God care about? How does God feel? Those are not questions to wonder about or even to form opinions about. God is knowable in Jesus. I mean, he's knowable in the way that, like, I don't speak Italian. I wish I did. But I know I could learn to speak Italian if I wanted. The, the, the knowledge is out there. I just haven't done it yet. Jesus makes God knowable in the way that if you don't know him today, you can. It's just a question of whether or not you want to look. Another way of saying it would be to say that it's not a relational problem. Jesus makes God knowable, meaning that God isn't hiding. But if you're wondering if God wants you to know who he is, the answer is unequivocally yes, because Jesus came to made him, make him known. But you see, if we actually get to know God, if God is in fact knowable and we come to know him, then the result is that we're going to have to reimagine because all the opinions we had about God are going to be contradicted. So the more we come to actually know God, the more we're going to have to change our understanding of, of him and ourselves and the world around us. I'll give you an example. It's a little bit like marriage. I've been married for 17 years, and I'm still learning my wife. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh, very early on in our marriage, my wife told me that when she's crying, even if it has nothing to do with me, she wants to be hugged. Okay, now some of you think, well, yeah, of course. Well, well see, I'm a guy, so if in the occasion I was crying, I wouldn't want you to notice, acknowledge, or talk about it at all. So early on in our marriage, she would start crying, and I would just stand there. And she'd be like, I'm crying. What does this mean? And I'd be like, oh, you want your space? You, you want a Kleenex, right? And she'd be like, I want a hug. And you would say, well, Zach, that's not that hard, but I'm a guy. So it is. Now, last night, 17 years in, we're, we're watching uh, television in our room, but I'm watching one thing, and she's watching another. And all of a sudden, I hear behind me this... So I stopped what I'm doing, and I turn, and I go, are you sad? And she goes, yeah. And I says, what you're watching sad? She goes, it's so sad. And then I said, do you need a hug? <laughs> Moment of glory. And she did. She did need a hug, right? 17 years in, I'm learning constantly to reimagine what I think I know about my wife through actual relationship with her. You see, if God is knowable, then one expectation that you and I absolutely should have is that it will mean reimagining who he is. It will mean reimagining what he wants, what he's about, what he, what, he, what he wants from us, how he feels about us. It will mean reimagining, but that's okay because it will mean actually getting to know him. That's what Jesus makes possible. But here's the second reason Jesus is worth reimagining your life because of, and that is not just who he is, but what he does. I want you to notice the very last verse in this passage. Here's what it says. Verse 20. And through him 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. Making peace. Now that's interesting because the only reason you need to make peace is if there's currently war. And you see, here's one thing that's going to happen. If, if you begin to say, you know what, I do want to know God, and you begin to read the life of Jesus as uh, found in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. You can't find them? Look in the table of contents. And if you begin to read, what you're going to find is that Jesus makes clear, we are at odds with God. Everyone in this room is a sinner, born into a, a world of rebellion, participating in rebellion. I mean, one way of knowing that we've already talked about is that we have lived our entire lives making God up, acting as though our own opinions and ideas of God are actually who he is. Can you imagine how offensive that is to God? We are sinners. We, if we were to go to God right now, what we should expect from him, Jesus will tell us, is judgment. Let's put a pen in that for a second. If you read the Bible, the first half of the Bible or so is called the Old Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it'd be best to think about it as act one of a two-act story. Okay, it's the first part of the story. And when you read act one, one of the really cool features of it is that it talks a lot about all these different heroic figures. It's one of the best parts of it. You get to read these crazy stories about these men and women who do amazing things uh, out of their faith for God. And what's interesting is that a lot of the heroes are what theologians would call champions. Now, the difference between a hero and a champion is a, a hero does something heroic but a champion does something heroic on behalf of people who cannot do it for themselves. They're a representative. They are heroic when other people can't be. So like, for example, it's not just that Noah built a boat and survived the flood. It's that Noah's boat rescued the seven other members of his family. He's a champion. He hears the call of God, and because of his faithful obedience, other people are saved. It's not just that David faces down Goliath. It's not just that he's heroic. It's that behind him is an entire nation that when he defeats Goliath doesn't have to be slaves. When they were cowards, incapable of being heroic, he stood up. It, it's not just that Esther goes to the king and, and intercedes on behalf of the Jewish people to save them from the evil plot of Haman. It's that she does what they could not have done for themselves. She's their champion. Her heroism rescues the rest of the people. Let me give you a different story. I, I don't know if you're a, a sports fan, but, but I am, so I'm going to use a sports analogy. The Cleveland Cavaliers are our basketball team, not, not our lousy football team who are going to finish the season today, and I'm sure disappoint me again, but, but our basketball team. And our basketball team is young, and they're good. I don't know if you've been watching them. They're incredibly fun to watch. In the offseason, they traded for a, a superstar player named Donovan Mitchell. Now, if you don't watch basketball, all you need to know is Donovan Mitchell is really good. And here's the thing. I'm a sports fan. I knew Donovan Mitchell was good. I was excited when the Cavs got him. I, I've heard of Donovan Mitchell. Now, I know he scored 50 points in the first round of the playoffs a couple years ago. I, I know he's, a, he's an incredibly talented guard. But here's the thing. When he played for Utah, I wasn't staying up to watch the Utah Jazz play. And I didn't get NBA League Pass so that I, I, I wouldn't miss Donovan Mitchell's antics. I, I, I didn't care. 
But then last week against the Chicago Bulls, he scored 71 points in a game, and it's all I talked about for a week. Do you know the difference? Here's the difference. Donovan Mitchell didn't start being a good basketball player last week, but here's the thing. His 71 points last week, those were my points. Do you know what I mean? He plays for my team now. So he's always been a great basketball player, but now he plays for my team. His glory as a basketball player and my good as a Cavaliers fan are connected. For one glorious night, he did against the Bulls what I could not do myself. <laughs> That's exactly, well, not, not exactly. It's an appropriate metaphor for what Jesus Christ has done. Because it isn't just that Jesus makes God knowable, because making God knowable means talking about judgment and, and, and sin and, and, and bitterness and disappointment and all the things we live in, right? It isn't just that he did that. It is that Jesus then did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Look at what it says in verse 20. And, and to, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, listen, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus lived the life that you and I could never have lived. He was completely and utterly sinless. So that for him to know God was only to know acceptance, only to know love, only to know joy, because there was no reason he and God would be at odds. But Jesus on the cross became an enemy of God as my sin was placed on him and your sin was placed on him so that he dies up under the anger and judgment of God so that when he raises from the dead three days later, there's no anger left for me. Jesus lives in my place and dies in my place in order as my champion to do what I cannot do for myself. Jesus says to me, Zach, I've not just come to make God knowable. He says to you, I haven't just come to make God knowable. I've come to make it so that when God sees you, he sees only my righteousness on your behalf. Therefore, when God sees you, he loves you. He accepts you. He welcomes you. You have only joy, only love, only forgiveness, only welcome, only acceptance. You see, that means reimagining because I don't have to hide from God. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to act as though I have it all together because God's love for me is not based on my own moral performance. I don't have to slay Goliath. I don't have to build a boat. I don't have to intercede to the king. Jesus, my champion, has done it for me. Religion is so exhausting because it says, stand up for yourself, but Christianity says, what if God, in his infinite love and infinite mercy and infinite grace, stands up for you himself? Well, that would mean reimagining everything. That would mean opening up to the idea that I can be loved, that God does welcome me, that God does accept me. Here's the third reason Jesus is worth reimagining your life because of, and that is where he's going, where he's going. You see, the thing about Donovan Mitchell is he scored 71 points against the Bulls. I can't do that. I have scored on an NBA player. I can tell you that story sometime if you want, but I could not score 
71 points against the Bulls. He did that for me. And it was an amazing night. But it was just that one night. The Cavs are going to have more games. I'm going to win some. I'm going to lose some as a fan. But what Jesus has done has implications that keep going. They're not momentary. They're not singular. They're not located in one day or one night. Look at what the writer says in Colossians 1. He actually says something. I mean, he says a lot of things that are really profound. There's this one phrase that's buried in there that I don't have time to fully unpack, but let me tease out a little bit. Look at what he says in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, listen, that in everything, he might be preeminent. So here's the thing. God's plan in human history, this is what the writer's saying, God's plan in human history is to work in our world, in time and space, in such a way that the final conclusion of all things is that Jesus is preeminent in everything. That God's overwhelming goal, that God's overwhelming plan is for the glory of Jesus to increase. God wants Jesus to be made famous. The same writer will say in Philippians 2 that one day it's the name of Jesus at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ, his glory is the focal point of human history. It is what God is driving at. So when you find yourself wondering, God, why would you allow this or, or cause that? Why would you do this or not do that. I, I can't answer all those for you, but I can tell you that the singular driving purpose of God is the glory of Jesus Christ. But why does that matter? Well, because his glory and my good, his glory and your good are linked. You see, for Jesus to receive glory is to receive glory through the goodness he brings into our lives. You can see this in the passage because the writer in verse 19, or I'm sorry, verse 15, gives you the resume of Jesus. This is what he says. I'm sorry, verse 16, he says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus, what's your resume? I made everything and everything that exists is for me. And if I took my eye off the universe for a second, it would implode. That's what it means by in him all things hold together. Okay, so Jesus, you have all this power. What are you going to do with it? You're a universe creator, a galaxy shaper. What are you going to do? Verse 20, what's he going to do? I'm going to reconcile people to God by the blood of my cross. See, Jesus is the creator of the universe, leveraging his glory for you and for me, for our good. His glory and our good are linked. They're linked. That's why, by the way, the writer will say, right before saying he's preeminent in all things, he will say, and he is the head of the body, the church, in other words, well, here's what God wants. God wants you and I to not only be rescued by Jesus, but to come up under the authority of Jesus. 
to let King Jesus be our head individually and collectively as a church, to go to King Jesus with our finances and our marriage and our children and our career and our sexuality and our hobbies and everything else so that as Jesus brings about our good, we will bring about his glory. I'll give you an example of this. I don't know if you're into New Year's resolutions. I am not. And the reason why is because I'm 39 and I have failed at too many of them. If I went to my wife and said, this is what I'm going to do this year, she would just chuckle and that chuckle would hurt my feelings. So I don't do New Year's resolutions. But every year, I know at least one person who obnoxiously keeps their New Year's resolution. Right? You know this person. We all are so proud of them. And inevitably, come June, July, August, they'll have lost weight, they'll be in great shape, they'll have learned something, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and we will say to them, wow, you look so good, which is passive aggressive for, and I hate you. <laughs> and after we say, you look so good, then we will say, how did you do it? And here's what we're saying. I see the goodness you've experienced, to whom should I give the glory? Do you see that? You've lost a lot of weight. Goodness. How did you do it? And they go, oh, I'm on this diet plan. And then what do you do? You Google the diet plan. Because the glory of the goodness you've seen has compelled you to check it out. It's the same with Jesus. Here's what we don't understand. We think if we give God control of our lives, he will destroy us. I don't know why we would think that since the knowable God that Jesus reveals to us is a God who loves us so much he would give his own son for us. As though God's in heaven going, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sucker them into trusting me by sacrificing my only son and then when they give me the keys to their house, I'm going to burn it down. But actually what God wants is that as we give him control, he wants to bring us to flourishing, bring us to goodness, so that as others marvel over the goodness of God in our lives and go looking for who they might give the glory to, the answer would be Jesus. You see, God wants you to give him the keys so that he might become preeminent in the lives of your neighbors, in the lives of your family. That as he pours out his goodness, again, as he defines goodness, not as you define it, but as he defines it, they might give glory to Jesus, your king. Because his glory and your good are connected. You see, when you let God take control of whatever, pick the topic. If you let God take control, you are basically giving control to a galaxy-shaping, universe-creating God who only wants two things, your good for the glory of Christ. And that's why we would reimagine our lives. God, I, I thought it made sense for me to be in control, but that's ridiculous. I want Jesus to lead. I want to reimagine so that he might receive glory as you bring about my good. Listen, dissatisfaction can drive us to go looking for Jesus, and if that's what brought you in today, you are in absolutely the right place. But even if you find yourself mostly content with your life, there's something greater waiting for you in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, we stand amazed at what you've done 
Jesus, you have created the very universe in which we live. You could have leveraged your power to do any number of things, not to mention you could have leveraged it to judge us, to destroy us righteously. But instead, because of your great love and mercy and kindness, you have leveraged your power to rescue us. We praise you for your grace and your mercy to us. Jesus, we, our desire is to give you the keys of our lives to be reimagined, Holy Spirit, for you to do the work. As we, we, we echo the prayer of the guy who said to Jesus, we believe, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.